And we are live. Welcome back to episode three of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. How you doing, John? I'm doing well this morning. I'm ready to get into some fun, esoteric topic sectors. I think we have a lot of fun things planned today, so we'll see where it goes. We're taking a little bit of a pivot from the last two episodes. Hopefully keeping this theme of having a two episode series or set of chapters where we go through and dive into some interesting topics and ideas and explore those for two to three episodes and then move on to some new applicable topics that will hopefully plant some seeds for you to think about in your day to day and in your life and then go through and hopefully understand what these themes and topics mean to us as we go through this conversation. And I think today, the topic that we wanted to really dive into and take a strong pivot and start to explore is the organization of modern day companies and economics in a broad scale, not really going into deep micro levels of understanding and trying to go through a lecture as much, but more so in a a general sense of how companies are developing today as we see some of the most massive and profitable companies the world has ever experienced and how they're they're kind of changing in the different scales of new entrepreneurial efforts and these massive companies that are changing the world. Yeah. And and on that note, I mean, really the, the topic sector is on the notion of scalability. So you have these massive profit engines of usually more than a few thousand individuals coming together to produce some form of organizational product. Sometimes it's a lot more than that. And really the root question that I wanted to explore today is, well, what are the scalability issues when you have a single company that is trying to generate a lot of profit and it has a lot of employees that are potentially not fulfilling the gaps needed by the company. And so you actually are getting people paid that don't really deserve to be paid in a sense that they're really not doing much for the actual workforce. And so you're actually removing a lot of the efficiencies associated with the capitalism uh, and, and that whole that whole sector there. And so, I mean, on that notion, I mean, where, where do you want to jump into this, Joe? I mean, there's a lot of places we can start. Um, but I, ideally, I'd like to at least jump into the idea of, well, restricting human capital in an organization. And maybe I'll start with this question, right? So if you have a company and you have maybe, say, a thousand in that company right now, what would happen if you said, okay, you can't have any more than 100 people? And, and, and the idea here is really just to lock in solid talent for your company so that every single one of those 100 members of that company is well apt to handle any type of task, has the skills necessary to complete the task and so forth, basically removing the redundancies of human capital and labor. Um, And and, and when you you apply this idea, it it initially seems a little bit unintuitive as, as a success story for scaling models. But when you realize that well, it's not just one fish in the sea, it's actually quite a few, right? And in terms of capitalism, there's thousands, there's hundreds of thousands of different corporations. And if you applied these types of restrictions at this scale, this global scale that we're referring to, well, what happens, right? And and do you see more collaboration between companies? Do you see companies actually moving faster because they only have the best talent source? I think it's a great idea. I think there's a whole theme that we could we could bring this this episode around and kind of dig down into understanding how these different size organizations work and operate. And then from there, kind of tracing through the, the theoretical experiment, or at least the brain experiment of how we want to figure out what the productivity is between large companies that have tens of thousands of employees, and then what that productivity shift looks like for companies that are highly specialized and have a hundred or less employees. And I think there was just some, some fundamental statistics that I wanted to understand and see if we could build off of a base point. So looking at some of the, the census data from 2021, there are over 13 million businesses in the United States that have anywhere between one and four employees. And then as the scale continues to go down, it's five to nine employees, 10 to 20, and so on and so forth. But then once we get to the 100 to 250 employees, there are 150,000 companies. So far, far less. And then when we go to 1,000 plus employees, there are 9,800 companies that have less, that have more than 1,000 employees Mm -hmm. compared to 
13 million. So there's obviously, which makes sense, far more small businesses in the United States than these very large companies. But then also with this data, there are the total number of um, total number of businesses as well as the annual sales ranges. And I'd be really curious to see how they broke these down. So for companies that have under $500,000 in annual sales, there are 13 million businesses. Very similar to the 13 million businesses that have one to four employees. And then for companies that have over $1 billion in sales range, there are 5,500 of those companies. So I would love to see in as much granularity as we could find, just to start off, how these are connected. So if you could take an organization that has 55 people and then look at their annual sales range and then find this two-dimensional distribution to see how large a company is versus what their annual sales range looks like. And then from there, hopefully go through and understand from a, a principle that you were you were referring to or the, the base point of what would it look like if we were to put out this theoretical restriction and say each organization could have a maximum of 100 people. And not only what this would look like, but would this be better and why? And would it be important in the way individuals grow within a company? Yeah, and I, I think the, again, the thing to keep in mind is, you know, while the company in in question may only have a hundred people, the people that they're the other companies that they're communicating with also have a hundred. And, and when you put the amalgam of all of these companies that are in a grid network, you can have a company model that is outsourced to thousands of individuals. And so you're actually not really limited in human capital. Really, you're just trying to remove the inefficiencies associated with larging, large scale of human capital within a single company entity. And I think this is a pretty interesting idea in that, well, how does profitability scale the more people you have in an organization? Does it? And, and is, it, is it a linear thing or is it, is there diminishing turns? Maybe it's logarithmic. Maybe there's a cap, you know, maybe, maybe every sector, maybe it's not a hundred people. Maybe it's like 123, right? Some random, random number from, you know, who knows, right? It's just the, the perfect optimization network for a given industry sector. And, and this is what I'm saying. It's not necessarily, you know, a hundred person limit restriction. That's, that's the cap and that's all there is to it. What I'm saying is that if we impose at any level some type of restriction for the number of people in a company, how will that change how the intercompany relations are managed? How are the supply chains inside a nation organized then when everything is just purely outsourced? There is no real one holder for a specific thing. It's a collection of individuals that have that property. So essentially, it's it's an extremely distributed form of capitalism. And I think in this experiment, let's let's try and call it something. Let's give it a name. Um, I like platform capitalism. I think that's a good name to describe this and what we'll refer to we'll, what we will refer to this one hundred or n person experiment as we go through and figure out how organizations that are distributed like this can continue to grow and leverage their their employee talent and really understand these, hyper efficiencies that come up when you have a hard set limit on the number of employees you can have. Because I think it is common in a lot of organizations and there have been studies in the past that have shown this kind of like the Pareto distribution and how that described the number of employees who output uh, the most productivity in a company. Something like the 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 top or the 25%. Is this isn't the 80-20 rule, is it? I don't think so. No, the, mm. the Pareto distribution was showing that 75%, I may get these wrong, 75% of the productivity or output in a company is done by 30% or less of the workforce, right. something like that. And I think there were caveats to that experiment that there were a minimum number of employees that was not 100, it was definitely higher than that. Right. But in the, in the reference of larger organizations, there is definitely some sort of a distribution depending on the company and the organizational structure. And this is the big challenge with what's great companies massive companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and these growing tech companies that can continue to disperse their workforce, especially in the past year, now that we have so many more employees that are remaining in a remote work environment. Um, now, will this turn into some sort of a new working culture? Or could this be kind of a frame of example of how we look at the idea that we should really kind of dig into and get as granular as we can what would it look like mm -hmm. if distributed workforces were segmented by 100 person companies and that you had to go through a step-by-step -step process for every new piece of talent or service that your company needs to grow? 
you either have to make the decision to let someone go within your organization to replace that spot with a new talent, or if that's more challenging, or if it's greater than one person, you have to find a new niche organization to outsource to, to another 100 person organization. And you create this massive network of essentially a company supply chain where we go through bit by bit of the different aspects that need to be accomplished for this product to grow and to scale and to work itself into society. Right. And, and, and I'm just going to kind of highlight this idea and just presenting potential problems with how it is now. And I mean, the idea is that, okay, you want, let's just say, let's take it simple. Everyone needs an HR. Everyone needs a human resources manager, right? So say you're looking, getting a new HR to your team, right? And really trying to optimize how they're managing the workforce and so forth. But you find some really good talent out there, but they just don't fit the cultural and values of your company, right? And this is a huge thing. If you, if you want to do well in your company, you have to, at some level, enjoy the people you're working with, right? And so instead of actually trying to find the perfect HR with the right skill set and the right cultural balance, what you can do is then outsource to an HR com company. And all you're really getting is the talent. You don't have to worry about the culture. You don't have to worry about how they nestle into your company. I mean, they'll be working with your company, but the culture itself is separated into this, you know, what, what I would call an HR 100 person company that is highly optimized and has other companies that they work for. And they provide HR solutions to probably another set of 10 to 100 companies, right, depending on the scale of that outsourcing model. And so, I mean, the whole, the whole thing here is that you're able to isolate one thing that you want for your company, and that's skill set, right, when you're outsourcing. And I think that's such a valuable thing because you don't necessarily need to worry about the, the character and its symbiotic relationship with the other coworkers at that high detail level, right? And, and I think, you know, this, this kind of brings into what we, why we're calling this platform capitalism, because every single business model then would function as a platform that can be used by other companies, right? And that's the whole thing. It's, it's that, okay, well, we need this specific niche sector figured out. And since we're hyper-specializing to this niche thing, we have 100 people devoted to this one niche thing. Let's see if we can use other companies to kind of just bounce ideas on and actually grow a whole more diverse sector without having to really engage in getting new talent for the hyper-specialization, collaborating with them and managing them within a single company entity, you know? And so it's at that level, it's, well, we can really diversify talent at a large scale. And you, you build almost like, I, I don't know if you, you can imagine like a neural network, right? You're building a neural network for, for capitalism, all these connecting pieces that you're somewhat interrelated and, you know, and, and, then it, and then it brings up to the next sector, which is competition. How does this change competition? How does this change innovation inside the market sector? And that's kind of where I wanted to jump into. And then we're going to talk into probably one of the most problematic ideas or problematic things with this idea, which is confidentiality. So how can you secure confidentiality if you have such a diversified talent pool? And so, I mean, first and foremost, let's just get into, you know, how does it affect competition and innovation? Well, I think the, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is how it's almost an all or nothing in the sense of the, the organizations that take part in this. So for this experiment to even be successful, it's almost an all or nothing approach where if you don't have all of the organizations in this supply chain or in this group partaking it in can't this, work. it won't work. So firstly, that has to be a core fundamental of this thought experiment. And then secondly, what comes to mind is why would people want this? Or I guess, why would this be beneficial? If, if you are imposing this restriction or this cap, I don't even like the word restriction, but if you're imposing this cap in the free market and capitalism, why would this be good? Because what I see happening is you, you have a company that's hyper-specialized in one very niche aspect of the supply chain of a product. Say, for example, we're doing cloud service integration for a new company, you know, up and coming. And that's your niche companies, cloud service integration. And eventually you would want to allow your employees to grow within the organization and develop your talent and increase your capabilities and your scale of where you go and how you can take your competitive edge as a cloud integration service, become competitive, and then move into the positions that get those contracts. How are they winning contracts? You maintain your competitive edge. You have a very talented workforce, but then eventually I feel like the, the logarithmic plateau will come fairly soon where a company will reach some sort of a 
a cap on how much it can physically output in the the labor of their their employees. This, I think, so I think this brings up the idea of, okay, you want to scale, but you already have so many different outsource companies here and it gets really complicated managing all of them. So then what you find is a company that is another 100 person company, say, or N equals whatever, we'll just go with 100. It's a nice, easy, even number. And their whole goal is to work on outsourcing companies. That is their company. So you have a company that manages companies? We have a company that manages the outsourcing of companies. That level of distribution. I don't like it. Yeah, it gets it gets a little <laughs> bit complicated, right? So I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe there should be sectors where this could apply and not all of them would work, but if you allow it to progress, it will change the way competition and innovation works. Because at the end of the day, what generates the most money is innovative products. Right. You can scale and then you can increase your PR, you can increase your marketing caps and so forth. And that's usually what comes with more more uh, employees and making sure you have large manufacturing chambers for a single product. But at the end of the day, what secures the most money in a short term is simply innovative products. Right. Definitely. And, right. And, and, and so like, yeah, you can you can develop an innovative product. And then over, you know, a 10 year span, you can build a whole team devoted to selling that product and your company gets pretty big quickly. You know, this is true, I think, of like a lot of the pharmacy products and so forth. So I guess the question I would want to answer is as we continue through this thought experiment of platform capitalism and how it could develop, I want to answer why I want to to understand, like, why, why would someone want this? Right. And I think the, for me, I mean, we can take a look at the tech companies, right? I, I think let's take a look at YouTube. So YouTube, there's been so much news about how just kind of, and I don't mean to bash on YouTube. I use it all the time, but just kind of how slow they are to change their algorithm, their recommendation system. And it's like, okay, well, why? And then you're like, okay, well, if I'm working within YouTube and I have this huge enterprise of coders now, and it's like, okay, I have this algorithm to change. And there's so many steps that I need to actually go through to actually make a single change to the code base for YouTube's algorithm recommendation suggestions. And it's like, that's not how you build a scaling company because eventually another competitive edge will come out and just be like, oh, I found a way better way to create algorithms for videos. This is how a competition market is going to basically get outplaced. I think this is what happens with companies like Kodak, for example, with the original camera. They were so set on selling their their, their original type of camera. I forget the name of their type of cameras, but they, they got super outplaced, you know, as, as all these video cameras started coming out because they started capitalizing on the manufacturing of this, what used to be an innovative product, but is not anymore, right? And I think the whole remedy here is how do you basically incentivize maximum innovation here? Because innovation is what generates the profit money and it's not easy to innovate, right? And so you need hyper-specialization, a whole 100 group of people focusing on one thing, Right. And then that then becomes this outsourced model in itself. And these each of these little sectors are devoted to innovating, just, just pure innovation. And they don't necessarily have to worry about because of the outsourced companies that manage their, you know, selling, their human resource management, they can really just focus on one thing, innovation, right? Or whatever it is. Okay. And, and so that's, I think that's where I'm going with this. And that's why I say like competition in this space would be extremely high. And then with competition, you get a lot of innovation, right? You have a lot of competing ideas to win the cake, you know, and, and, and that's, I think the key of why this idea could even potentially be successful, right? On the other hand though, where it becomes problematic is because you're basically trying to generate all this innovation and then outsourcing innovation. Well, well, how do you, how do you protect patents? Right. How do you protect protect IP? Right. And, and that's that's the problem here is is how do you how do you protect the actual integrity of the idea being distributed at this large scale? And I think that's probably the holdup and why this idea really can't take on to a more global charge. Um, people people are going to see these ideas and they're going to snag it up because they realize that these hyper-specialized facilities don't have the PR, they don't have the marketing, right? Because they're hyper-specialized into innovating this one thing in this one area, right? And so like they don't really have the sales team to sell it. And so if another team's sales team comes swoop it up, you know, and obviously underhanded corrupted methods, they could lose their innovation right there and it could be transferred over to the other one. And it obviously that one, that company that steals it, then couldn't recreate the innovation. So then they'd fall into the business model that Kodak would. And so it's it's a whole mutual terrible idea to even do that, right? It's not a sustainable thing in the first place. I feel like this would create, if this were to go on for say 20 to 35 years, 
from, from the, from the second it's implemented and all these companies now have to reform and adapt into a 100 person platform capitalism approach. I feel like this would create such an individualistic culture within companies that as these companies continue to churn through their, their workforce and understand what really needs to keep them competitive and on that edge of getting contracts and being a part of the, the most high rewarding or return on investment supply chain, it will create highly skilled individual people within organizations that will come down to how few people do we need to complete X amount of tasks. And I think that's really interesting because I feel like that's essentially where we're kind of going right now in large organizations and companies that as people continue to shuffle around from company to company and from team to team and learning more skills, it is becoming ever more prevalent and present for people to need to have computational background, some sort of coding background, data analysis, statistics, but also a fundamental understanding of science and math and technology and medicine. And in order to be competitive in these fields that continue to merge, there will inevitably inevitably be people who enjoy the old ways of doing it that don't want this kind of merge between organizations like bio and tech. A lot of what's happening right now in this, in this biotech sphere and space is this computational approach to discovery, to production and manufacturing of therapeutics and medicine that is accelerating so rapidly right now. And what I hear from everyone in the space is that if you have a science background with a computational background, you're so powerful. And I think if the companies were limited to this 100 person structure, it will inevitably continue this funneling process of who can we find who has the most amount of skills that can accomplish this set workload that we have so that we can bring on someone else with a different, very unique set of skills. And it almost creates like a circle. The way I'm thinking of this is like a circle that has 100 points on the outside. And the closer you get to the circumference of this circle, the more specified you are. And the closer you are to the center of the circle, the more unspecified your skill set are. And you're kind of in this circular Venn diagram of capabilities and perfect optimization is having all 100 people in your organization on the circumference of the perimeter at every of that degree, circle. at every degree, though. at every degree, right? Because every degree is is some new type of skill somewhere on this quadrant. Now you've reached an instantaneous one hundred person, right? Perfect specialization, right? For that instantaneous moment, and then it continues to change. But it's really cool to see. So, who then, as as the needs of the organizations in supply chain and economy as a whole change, who single one or two people? drop back in closer to the circle and whose skills become less competitive or less mixed. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. And I, I'm going to I like that analogy a lot and I, I'm going to keep running with it because I think on large scale companies with, you know, more than a hundred people, sometimes more than a thousand, their goal is to fill in the circle, right? Their goal is to fill in the circle. And it's like, well, each one of those, those dots is a paycheck, right? Think about your revenue, right? You might be generating more revenue, but how, how much of those paychecks are actually taking away from your actual profit? And, and this is what I ask, right? Like if you imagine the area in this circle is basically the, the inefficient, the, the inefficient, the, the area where you're basically losing money, right? And that's, that's, a, that's a big area, right? I mean, look, if you just do like pi r squared versus pi D, right? You're going to get a very different result, right? Area versus circumference. And so like, I think that's a very good analogy in, into understanding how this kind of system would work. And then when you start, you know, overlaying these circles, whatever, and with multiple companies, you get even more diversified, right? And, and maybe, maybe you can think of it as, as getting more outsourcing is increasing the actual range of that circumference and then, you know, the distance between the points itself. And so you get this really diversified model. And, and this is why I say it's, it's, it comes back down to, you know, how do we protect the confidentiality of these things on this scale? How do we, how do we make sure that this highly lean, efficient team for this one devoted purpose isn't going to be side railed by some other company that has a, it's, it's only for marketing and PR, right? Cause they might just snatch it up and just PR it up, right? They're the, the whole company model for the marketing and PR guys is just going to snatch up good ideas, right? That are from hyper-specialized regions and then just sell them. That could be a company, 
right? And that's where it gets scary. And so it's like, well, there has to be significant changes to antitrust laws likely and how, and how ideas, I don't, I don't know what the right terminology is here for this, but there has to be ways in which we can actually protect this outsourcing. I don't know, some kind of legislation that anything, and I mean, this is already probably done at some level nowadays, but I don't know if it is in this level of high detail um, that I'm getting at. I'm not sure. I think, I mean, this would completely change the way organizations and companies in the workforce operate entirely. It's because I think this would also highly encourage people to change companies very rapidly and it would deteriorate this. And it'd be easy too, right? Because there's not that many people to think about relatively, right? In, in terms of, oh, like, again, I'm going to use a Kodak because they're a perfect example of how they basically stuck to their old, old guns and then they went, they went rusty and right. But it's like, oh, you can pivot now. You can make pivots in an industry sector when you realize, hey, these, this lab research isn't coming to fruitful ends, right? This, this, this a new battery that we have for our company, it's just not going to work for these cars, right? Let's make a pivot. We can because we're such a lean, efficient team. And I think this is how you create this huge competitive market that is staying in business with one another and continuing to innovate. It would be really interesting as well. And this is a, a whole other beast to try and approach. But how do you structure the financial reward system within this large supply chain. So as you designate the value add for each different organization's niche approach to whatever product you're trying to build in this, say, say it takes eight different 100 person companies to launch a product or to start a successful company. How do you distribute the value of who, which one of them added more, which one added less and who has the original idea and then the original ideator. So say the inventor or the research scientists or the early stage software engineers who came up with this idea, have the ownership, took the risk to work on this without a salary and all of that startup ecosystem that exists that are rewarded more because they took the risk. They didn't have a salary, et cetera as they have to outsource and continue to outsource these different tasks further and further down the line, they are still primary idea owners. So do they have to collaborate with this entire waterfall of organizations as you go from hundred person to hundred person to hundred person? So the, the original founder or the original founding team has to talk to someone who's gone through eight layers of the telephone game to understand, Oh, how is our PR implementation happening? Oh, you have to talk to company five in this chain. Like, would there be some sort of consultancy bridging in between each organization to maintain that liability of patent or how does, how does it start? How do we make a transition? Right. Is the general question with what we have now, what is, what is the transition to then building an incentive profile for this to actually work? Right. Is what I'm, is what I'm gathering from, from what you're saying. Like how do, how do we actually, you know, make it so it works. And I, I think it starts with building platform companies that their only purpose is to manage outsources, right? And so instead of going to company five, we got to go to company two, company three, company four, company, the whole company, this outsourcing company will be responsible for tracking down the chains. That is their specialization in itself. So all I have to do, if I want to know some information about, you know, the PR or something like that, or the HR, I just go to go to my outsource company. And there's going to be multiple ones out there, right? That are all going to be competing to manage your outsources, Right is how I'm imagining it. And, and I think that's where it starts because then they can start building the the whole model and they're the epicenter. They're like the, kind of the network, the central the central area in which the whole thing then grows from, right? And, and I'm like, uh, again, I keep, keep thinking in my mind of this like kind of neural network, right? Like this mass nodal connective network in which likely the center node from which it all is, is, is you know, the one that is connecting to all the other dots. And that's the key, I think, in, in finding a company that knows that has maybe like a set of 100 companies. And when you want to get an outsourced company, you just go to this one company and then it will contact the companies for you. Right. And that's kind of how and you just pay them the fees. Right. And oh, interesting. Right. And so then that would basically kind of and, and then they would pay the other companies that they're on, on their outsourced website profile. Right. They would pay them to be on their website, you know, and they get the PR so that they could actually license their products so they can, you know, have a, have a place in the world to then be used as an outsource. And, and so like, there's this whole, whole other sector of work that we would be generating here, a whole new labor sector, which is purely managing a different type of supply chain. I would call it an idea supply chain as opposed to a material supply chain. And I think that that does happen. 
Um, I think it happens with, you know, like online journals, online, like, like Bloomberg Terminal, right? Bloomberg Terminal kind of helps you understand, you know, what, what are the best companies in some kind of industry, maybe energy, right? That's where Bloomberg's really good for. But I think at a large scale, a company that operates directly as like a Bloomberg Terminal in that it is directly collaborating with the companies as opposed to just providing information to the companies, which can be chosen to consume or not, uh, it would change the game. Um, and I think that's that's where it jogs a whole bunch of thoughts because it's such a complicated system then, right? And, and, and no, no, no single person is going to own a monopoly. And this is the whole thing. If you want to prevent companies from basically being able to bully like, I mean, like with Amazon, I, I like Amazon too. I'm not trying to dish on Amazon, but Amazon's been known to bully, bully retailers and so forth that, that don't, don't, don't abide by their retail policies because they're the biggest commercial retailer in the world, right? And so they can bully people. But I mean, more or less, Amazon itself is a bunch of outsourced companies and that's what makes it so profitable. And I think as more and more companies start to realize how powerful you can become as this, you know, engine of, of, platform connections, then the competitive space will actually start to readjust for companies like Amazon. And they won't have, because they're, they're the ones who are really understanding this idea, I feel like, really understanding how to outsource talent, labors, all they have to do is manage it. They don't have to produce a single product. That's what Amazon is, right? It was really interesting. So someone someone showed me her analysis of all of Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters for the his entire time as CEO of Amazon, which was a fascinating analysis. I can send you the Medium article. Um, but it was really cool to read those and then kind of get a deeper understanding of where Amazon drives its revenue from and where they provide these services like cloud, like the Amazon web services, and then as well as their retail business and how they scale each of these separately and how they collaborate with so many individual third-party sellers and the volume of people or at least sellers on Amazon's platform that come from a third party versus an Amazon warehouse. And it's actually far greater. There's far more products sold through third-party services. And when you think about the trillion dollars or $800 billion of value that Amazon created for everyone who owns the rest of the, the shares, the outstanding shares that Amazon Amazon has besides Jeff, the value created to the world in the number of jobs and organizations they created is only possible because they were capable to scale to such a large level. And in, in a distributed system, I'm, I'm looking at their entire organization chart and from, from the top down and how they break out web services and software engineering and all of their niche approaches to the business. One, there is security in the sense that they they can fail in so many different areas of attempted innovation and still maintain their job. So they maintain talent and individuals who really want to contribute to these new ideas and have that safety net of such a large organization that has that buffer room to fail. Whereas a startup or a smaller 100 person company does not have that, that leeway to fail. So failure is really not an option at these small companies. And I think that's what would drive this hyper competitive environment of people forcing innovation and the cream of the crop kind of talent to be the best and the fastest and the most innovative and the most diversified and say our team has 98 people with incredibly different skill set. So are you creating an or so when people go into the workforce like Amazon or like Facebook or these large companies, there is an environment as you start an early career of providing and supporting, but also learning. And that makes me think, would there be a reduction in the capability for you to learn on your job as much as you are providing value or would that learning help you provide more value? Cause I think in some organizations you have that leeway to say, I need to learn this skill from people around mixed with my personal skills that I already bring to the table and then create something of multiplicative value. It makes me think so with, with companies that large and how they disperse across the globe and have this, this distributed set of resources. If you were to take the exact same organization chart, except just put a grid around every different team or on every hundred people and make that kind of a, a movable or replaceable tile piece, like a tile game where you can change leadership structures and organizational structures, would it still be successful? Could they have organized themselves with those resources that are movable 
end that kind of tricky IP landscape of, of intellectual proprietary information and then still accomplish what they did moving these pieces around and then adding in the most competitive aspects. Because if I were to look at Amazon from the outside, I would say they're incredibly powerful, incredibly competitive, which they are, but they have competitors too. So they have Microsoft Azure and they have Google cloud and there are competitors in this space, but no one ever orders anything different. So from the retail side of the business, you drive around highways and in, in rural or less, less urbanized areas, you see those massive Amazon warehouses. It takes you 10 seconds or more just to drive past one. They're so large. No one else has something like that. I mean, I guess Amazon's biggest retail competitor would be what Walmart, but yeah. no one orders things from Walmart online. Like Walmart next day delivery, you don't talk about it. It's Amazon next day delivery because they have literally an ecosystem on earth of their, their, their scope and how they can reach, reach consumers. And you might say, well, you know, Amazon doesn't really fit the platform capitalism case because they have so many employees, you know, they have like a million employees across the world, but within those niche structures, there is sub embedding of management and leadership and so forth. And I think that's what we forget is that there are very unique cultures within Amazon and, and so forth. And I, I think that is, you know, a very valuable thing to have. And, and, and maybe at some level, maybe at some level you would even outsource the leadership, right? Like you said, cause I mean, sometimes leadership is great for one thing, but not great for another thing. Right. And, and maybe they're really good for developing farm products, but they're not, they're not that good at, at developing like Tesla batteries or something like that. Right. And, and, and maybe you want to, you know, change and have the ability to superimpose leadership. And that's fine because, you know, then, then the problem sector is always new and refreshing and so forth. Maybe, maybe you might say it's okay. Well, that's a little bit of exhausting to think about, but I, I would encourage you to think that maybe it's not, maybe the, the constant novelty is actually what makes it more refreshing. As, as, a, as a way to actually hyperdrive your productivity, right? I, that's what I am always wondering is if you get stuck into the same loop of doing the same thing over and over again for many, many years on end, how does that change your productivity? So imagine you have a hundred person, hundred is the max too, it doesn't even have to be a hundred. Say, say we have a 67 person organization of CFOs, chief financial officers, and almost kind of like consultants, you are sent over to a new company or a new product that says, Hey, you know, we are innovators. We are inventors. We have a new product. We're very tech facing, very tech oriented, but we need financial leadership. You reach out to the CFO bank, the CFO company. Yeah. You say, we need one of you, almost like consultants, almost like high level partners at consultant firms that say, Hey, we need you to come in and help us restructure our leadership or restructure our organization to remain agile and lean and, you know, competitive and adapt to this new environment. But now you have literally seven different C-suite organizations that can come in and say, we need a new CEO. And I think on one hand, that could be really interesting and possibly successful, but also on the other hand, leadership has to have a very, very deep relationship and understanding with a lot of the employees in the company. Maybe not the CEO, maybe not the CEO, maybe the CEO stays, but maybe, maybe the other uh, C-suite execs can be changed. And then board members too. So the way the CEO answers to the chairman of the board the chairperson of the board. And there's the board who then answers to the shareholders. So as the shareholders, the primary shareholders and people vote on their, you know, happiness and success of the company, they say, you know what, we don't like the CEO. We don't like the way the company is being run right now. And the chairperson of the board will say, okay, we're making a shift. And the CEO or the, the COO gets, gets fired. And then with the replace with someone else. And it would be really interesting to see how these different organizational structures that exist right now and the relationship from investor, diversified investors, from the shareholders to the board, to the executive team, to the directors, and then to the rest of the employees. If you were to actually put in those segments, those walls and compartmentalize the organization of this. And as we sit here and try and recreate a new form of capitalism, it is an interesting thought experiment to think how, how we could implement these. And I'm curious to think in the, the continuation of our exploration of platform capitalism, let's approach it from 
the executive level and what that would look like to us. And then let's go through and approach it from the employee level and see what it would look like from, from their perspective too. So I'll pass it back to you. Let's start with the executive level. It's it's very interesting when you have superimposed C-suite execs. I mean, I'm going to say the CEO probably has to stay within a hundred person company. People need a leader that they can trust with their values and shared cultural values, whatever it is. And that's good, you know, but when it comes to people that are doing detailed nitty gritty finances, managing SCCs and, you know, all those, all those different types of things. I mean, when it comes down, you just want the best, right? You just, you just want the best not necessarily ethically or morally speaking, you just want the best in paper, right? Well, I think you want that too. Well, okay, yeah, maybe, let me, let me, let me, sorry, not ethically, maybe, maybe culturally, like in terms of like how the, the culture of the human itself is embedded within your company. That is not as, not as important. As long as they have, you know, a good ethical standard for creating this product and so forth, that's what you want, right? That's how you get the best quality stuff out there. And I feel like, for some small companies, right, they they have a lot of problem on their leadership, right, because they're they're new, they're novel, and, but they might have a really innovative product, and this is this is this is true of a lot of really cool startups that just fail. You're like, okay, we well, had a cool product, what happened, man? You know, and it's like, well, we just couldn't manage our leadership. We couldn't get these weird documents for our legal policies or whatever the hell it is. And I think that's that's a limiting factor. And what happens now if you say, okay, well, you can just innovate. Keep innovating and now we can just superimpose different executives that fit your criteria. And you could probably rotate. You could probably rotate through CFOs, you know, and and, and maybe the CFO network would have an inner collaboration. It's like, hey man, I, I wasn't able to really do the stuff. It's your turn, you know? Like you're you're the CEO of, of this of this outsourced company that we're going to manage, or maybe it's a collection of, of of five CFOs that you hire into your company, and that they kind of all intermingle, and they are, they're also working with a couple other outsourced companies as well, and you know, but I think that's where it gets really interesting as well. Is is you know what happens when you just outsource leadership at that level, and 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 does that does that make people feel like a chicken with their head cut off, or does it make them feel like they can fly, you know? That's what I want to know. That's interesting. Yeah. I think thinking about it from, from the leadership's perspective, it would be really challenging, but also the way I would think they would need to approach it is understanding the, the core competencies of this platform that you were brought into or that you were hired for in maybe a temporary time frame. Maybe they say you need to come in and help us with our, you know, S1 filing or whatever it is, would you even still have those steps, those steps in place? But from, from an employee's perspective, so say you are highly specialized, highly skilled in the manufacturing capabilities or the, the manufacturing environment, which is somewhat what we have now with, with large companies having dedicated manufacturing teams and facilities, and they can invest in those new facilities to come up. And that's where I think this would get even trickier is if you have a 100 person organization, they have a minimum or maximum capital capability to spend on new things that are very capitally intensive. So you, you build a new pharmaceutical manufacturing facility or antibody manufacturing facility. Those are millions and millions of dollars. It's incredible how expensive those are to build and do these small organizations that specialize in operating and maintaining and innovating within those have the money to build a new facility like that. And when you have larger companies that can say, you know, we want to build four of them in all of these different cities around the world, or if you want new new types of employees to come in and the cohesiveness of that team in the success factor of what you're working on, you change one person and the culture has to kind of like a snow globe resettle. Every time new people come in and out, you're shaking the snow globe and seeing how all these new pieces settle down and that's your new environment. And it is a constantly adapting workforce to be in. And from an individual's perspective, maybe that's good. Maybe that's not good. Maybe it's stressful, right? I mean, probably would be right. Because you're, you're constantly having change is stressful. Like people are apprehensive to change, although change in the right environments is really good, Mm -hmm. but it is probably really hard. Yeah. And I, I think what happens if you control the environment then? Right. How, how does that change the, the mental stability of these individuals? Because that's, that's really what, what I want to capitalize on here is how do you make sure people feel comfortable when they're working? Right. And they know what incentives or what structures that need to be completed. 
right? And, and I think when you get in a large company, it becomes confusing. What the hell am I supposed to do? Like, who the hell is doing this already, right? Because I have so many other people that I'm trying to figure out, track down, and you get a lot of redundant labor, I feel like. Definitely. You get a lot of redundant labor, and I think that's a big... And there's problems with both models, right? That's, that's the whole thing, right? There's going to be problems with managing how people get paid in this distributor network. And, you know, on the other hand, the other one is just not as incentivizing of innovation. And so it's a pick and choose, I think here. I think there is no best non 100% optimal non-failure rates, right? You're, you're always going to get failure, right? That's not what we're optimizing for. Again, I think the, the optimization factor here is making sure that new products come out and that no products really just stay on the market when they shouldn't be because they're just too big. And I think like, you know, with, with things like, uh, like Facebook, for example. I don't know. Facebook, I feel like it, it is, in a sense, dying in America, but gaining traction all across the world because that's all they really have. Like when you go to a different country, what's automatically installed on your device is Facebook. Is it really? Right? Yeah. If you go to like literally any other country around the world, the first thing, the only thing you really have is Facebook. And so all international corporate, like all internationals are, are using Facebook now more so than like America as, as a whole. I mean, there's just way more people out there, right? But I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is like, that's their only source though right? That's all they know. And so that's, that's absolutely terrible for innovation because A, Facebook's not going to be able to collect feedback as to what these people are want because they don't even know what the variety in this space of tech exists is. So they don't know, okay, well, maybe I want this kind of other widget and to manage my friends or whatever the hell it is, right? And, and, and then you basically limit the, the potential for these companies to grow like Facebook here. And, and I mean, Facebook's done well for themselves. I'm not trying to dish on any of these just companies. A, just a little bit. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, but you know, maybe they have some, some stuff going on, but whatever. That's so true. It's, it's been a very common thing for a lot of people that, that I talk to in, in the social media that they actively use, that it's an ongoing joke amongst almost everyone, at least in our, our generation and sphere that really only your grandparents and your family, and then like your random cousins or, or, or aunts and uncles post on Facebook. It's really mostly even for me, my grandparents and like sometimes my parents, but that's it. Most people today do not use Facebook for what we originally used it for, which was social connectivity, sharing update statuses on your life, informing people of, I don't know, life changes that are going on. I think the most changes I see that people actively post or upload now are education, marriages, and anniversaries, things like that. And they post large volumes of, of content. And I think now Facebook is kind of molded into more of an entertainment service than it is a social media platform. Because whenever, which is very rare, I go on Facebook, I see tennis videos and like different engineering forums and all these things. And it's an entertainment platform. And I end up watching videos rather than seeing updates on people that I know. And if I want to see that, you go on Instagram. Instagram is the central point for instantaneous updates on someone's life, which has now become someone's personal story or at least personal pho photographic movie of what their life is. And it's been so interesting to talk to people and kind of figure out like why they post what they do. And this is a whole other conversation that yeah, we can no, save. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And I, but I mean, I think it gets to the idea of you know, what's happening globally. And right now we, we've been kind of been focusing, I think on America here with a lot of these tech companies, but you know, the thing is when you, when you create these limits on how many people you have in your company, it also enables access for other companies that really don't have the infrastructure to develop these large scale companies and compete with large scale companies at this level to actually grow. And you get more global competition as well, because it's, it's a little bit easier to form, you know, this, 100 person company than it is a 2000 company and start competing with the big ones, right? Then it's just a matter of, okay, well, who, who have you contacted? That's all you got to do. You just got to outsource pretty much everything and you can become up to that, that ranking status without actually having to hire and go through all the different interview process to get that many people mobilized. Let's, I mean, I, I think we could even like bring it full circle to through, through the experiment, through that thought experiment to, to what what is actually changing in companies right now and who you can contact is, is literally the core, I think, shared goal and skill across so many different people within organizations is the networking. Networking is such an overused term to describe such a powerful tool for how organizations grow because individuals and teams and organizations and how they get products is how you network, who you know, how you talk to people and the deals that you can bring in and and grow your company. That's literally what it is. And if you were to just put these hard restrictions between them as 
we're going to work together. This is a different company, but we are outsourcing to you. You outsource to someone else. And then from here, we create individual hyper competition, but also hyper special specialization, Mm -hmm. which is great for innovation, right? Which is, which is very good. And right. This is, this comes down to the general quote buzz buzzword here. You know, your network is your network. And I think that has some validity. I think, I think there is some truth to that. I mean, it's also about how well, you know, the network and how much they're willing to do for you. Right. And you can have a massive network, but a bunch of strangers, who the hell cares about a bunch of strangers, right? It's a small network because you can't actually access the resources that they would potentially give you. And I think that's that's kind of the remedy here. It's like, well, let's build a network and, and, and actually create cooperation at a business level. And that is a network that you can trust, right? More or less, because you're getting people to do actual work for you and you're going to be collaborating and actually building a network because that's how the whole thing scales. If you don't have a network in this model, you're screwed, right? Everything is network here and it's all about having high fidelity within those networks as well. And that's, I think, key. So it's your network and how well you know your network is your net worth. That's, I think, something I want to just just put out there because that's something I think people, people forget. It's like, all right, I, I just got to accumulate this massive network of, of people. And I'm like, well, do you, how many of these people could you actually contact to do something for you? That's very true. That's so true. And I think there's so many different levels of relationships and this isn't something that we'll get into now, but I think just even from a bird's eye view, when we look at how you almost meet new people and maintain relationships and professional relationships and professional friendships and friendships that can be professional. There's so many different layers to this and who you work with and learn from that. I think it's all one giant Venn diagram of people within your, your field and who, you know, and who you can work with and work on different projects with and learn from. And I think it's such a powerful skill. And I think this is really important to, to bring it back full circle that while this type of platform capitalism will probably never be something that we see in our lifetime. It's an interesting thought experiment. I think what, what I really take home and take, take personally is that how you as an individual grow within these companies and teams that are small and large and massive, how you differentiate yourself and the skills that you're bridging and finding some niche area. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to know everything. And most often you can't know everything, but the ability for you to dive really deep into one area and get really good at it, or maybe two, maybe you pick two areas that may be seemingly unrelated where you have to outsource that skill or you have a whole new team member that has that skill. What if you were to just really dive into both, merge them and you become exponentially more competitive Mm -hmm. because you have both of those skills. And I think that's what I want everyone to try and think about whatever your work is, whatever it is you're working on. How can you blend a Venn diagram of skills that you have or that you could have and make yourself that much more competitive. Absolutely. And and I think we're approaching the hour mark here. So we're going to have to wrap up. But really the the general caveat is what is it like to distribute skill? And, and how does that work? Well, even within yourself, how do you distribute your own labor? How do you distribute your own resources to devoting time to do X or Y, right? And, and that's something you need to think about because it's such a valuable thing to understand how your talents fit into some larger ecosystem. So with that, I think, you know, consider platform capitalism and, and, and just, just try to see, for example, just let it, let it play out in your, in your mind and, and see what happens. When you start really getting down all those little nodal connections, you'll start to see something might actually change and it could, could be beneficial at a, at a level. But again, you know, with, with the infrastructure we have in place, like you said, Joe, it's, it's probably not going to be happening <laughs> the way that we are thinking about, not even close. So, I mean, that's all I really wanted to say. And I think that's, it's a good place to close. There it is. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. All right. That's been episode three. Thank you all.